Good morning. Welcome to our 11 o'clock service. We're in a sermon series, a preaching series on the hard teachings of Jesus, some of the hard things that Jesus said. We've had an interesting time. Kind of, some of the things that Jesus said are hard to understand. We've looked at a couple of those things, and some of these things that Jesus said are very easy to understand, but they're hard to do. And today's lesson, today's teaching is the latter. It, it's about loving enemies, loving your enemies, which is something that I think everybody knows what it means, well, they, they were to do that, uh, and yet it's, not, it's hard because it's difficult to do it. This, this, the passage we're looking at is again in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, the first part of that sermon, chapter 5, towards the end of it. Now, if you have a Bible, you can turn to it. ESV translation is going to be on your overhead, on the overhead to my left, your right, and we'll stand as we listen to, to God's holy word. <clears throat> Verse 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, this is Jesus talking, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sits rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers... What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. God's word you may be seated. About 1965, some of you might remember this, a few of you might remember this, I certainly do. Uh, a composer, Hal David, um, wrote a song, a hit song. He wrote it with Burt Backrack. It was, it was sung by a little-known woman named Jackie DeShannon. It's not just a song. It was a prayer. Lord, we don't need another mountain. There are mountains and hillsides enough to climb. There are oceans and rivers enough to cross, enough to last till the end of time. Lord, we don't need another meadow. There are cornfields and wheat fields enough to grow. There are sunbeams and moonbeams enough to shine. Oh, listen, Lord, if you want to know what the world needs now is love, sweet love. Oh, how simple a song can you be? Simplistic. The world needs more love. But he says, it's the only thing that's just too little love. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. No, no, not just for some, but for everyone. Everyone. Everyone? Even the people that it's hard to love? That's what Jesus is talking about here in this passage. Loving enemies. I believe that years from now, historians will look back, cultural historians will look back on this decade as a time when we saw a large uh, decrease in civility in our land. People are realizing the importance of, 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 realizing the importance of treating one another. We just don't have that anymore. Treating one another in a civil, respectful, loving manner. Maybe it's because we just get, we haven't, we've rejected the gospel of Christ. Maybe that's what it is. Think of it, we're so used to it now. You know, just this week, there was a viral video. That, did you hear about that video that, of, of this school in, in South Carolina, Spring Valley High School? A deputy, uh, um, Ben Fields, a resource officer, and how he treated that student. Now, I'm sure she's, she must have said something, right? But that seemed over the top in the aggression that he did in response to trying to get her to, to get up from that class as the teacher and as a principal had asked to do. There's no longer a commitment to a basic love for neighbor, even love for enemy. There is no civility in the land. Maybe you saw the presidential debates. Maybe you've been watching. Maybe you're tired of watching them. I don't know. 
You, you see, we see the failure of people to just listen to one another. We see rudeness and name-calling. We see constant speaking over one another, trying to get the latest dig in. We see disrespect for the moderators. Whatever happened to civility, people? And those are potential leaders of our nation. It sounds simplistic to say that what we need now is more love, more love. Jesus calls us to a high ethic in this scripture on the Sermon on the Mount. He calls his people in particular, he calls us to, to, to be people of mercy, people of peace, people of compassion towards one another and towards our neighbor. The theme today in this passage is simple. Jesus calls us, his people, to imitate his heavenly father and our heavenly father by doing that which is actually impossible, loving our enemies. Doing that which in our strength is impossible, loving our enemies. Most unbelievers even believe, they understand the gospel includes this thing of loving neighbors. In fact, many of them think that's just what the gospel is. We're supposed to love each other. That's what, God, that's what Jesus came to bring love to the world. And everybody just needs to love each other. But it's more complicated than that. It's more, it's more complex than that. <clears throat> because loving each other is difficult. Loving neighbors are difficult. Let's look at this passage. I'm going to look at three things here in this passage. I'm going to look at the exhortation to love your enemies, which Jesus gives here very plainly. Then I'm going to talk about the impossibility of loving your enemies. And then the energy. How do we do it? How do we love our energy? What energy is available to us to love our energy? First is the exhortation in verses 43 and 44. In, these, in, in, the, in this passage, this part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been going through this six times where Jesus is correcting. He's correcting false understandings of what the Old Testament said. The religious leaders had a, a view that the Bible says this, and this is how we apply it, and Jesus says, uh-uh, uh-uh. He said, you've heard it said this. Now, there were things in the Bible, but it was also the interpretations about the, what the Bible said. And Jesus says, you've heard it said this, but I say unto you. Now, that's pretty brash for Jesus, isn't it? I mean, who are you, young Jesus, the young rabbi, to, to, to correct the, the rabbis and the scholars of Judaism? No, Jesus is the son of God, that's why. And so he says, you've heard it said this, but here's what I say. He's, and there's six corrections that he does in this, in this Sermon on the Mount here from verses 27 and following to 48. And we're dealing with the sixth one, the sixth of the six corrections, uh, where you've heard it said you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and hate for those who persecute you. Now, the Bible does say you should love your neighbor. It doesn't say you should hate your enemy. Leviticus chapter 19, verses 17 to 18, says this in the context of neighbor, neighbor relationships. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that's not just the word of Moses. The next phrase is, I am the Lord. Moses is writing the word of God. And we're to love our neighbor as ourself. And if, you know, if you've read the New Testament or have heard the New Testament, Jesus several times repeats that, calls it the great commandment. Matthew chapter 19, he's talking to a rich young ruler and says the great commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is quoting Leviticus 19. To the lawyer in Luke chapter 10, he says, who's my neighbor? Jesus tells the story. You to love your neighbor as yourself and love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Nowhere in the Old Testament are God's people commanded to hate their neighbor, to hate their enemy. Never. Now, there's a couple ways where people might think that that's what we're called to do, but it's not. It's not, it's not what God called us to do. 
Verse 44, love your enemies and pray for your enemies, particularly those who persecute you. It's very easy, see, to start hating rather than praying for people who irritate you, isn't it? Very easy to begin to hate. When you feel like we feel hate welling up in your heart, you need to say, I think I need to pray about this. John Stott, great theologian, said, we must not wait before praying for an enemy until we feel some love for him in our heart. No, we must begin to pray for him before we are conscious of loving him. And we find our love break first into bud and then into blossom. You, 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 you begin to pray, and then you, you, the love will come after you've prayed a bit. Don't think that you're going to love and then pray. It doesn't work that way. Stott is absolutely correct. Enemies, loving your enemies. Enemies come in, in several different packages to us. Uh, there, there sometimes there's distant people who we know something about, but we don't know a lot about them, but we think we understand and we don't like them. <laughs> Remember the Old Testament book of Jonah? God called him to go to the Ninevites. As soon as he heard Nineveh, I said, uh-uh, I don't, I've heard about the Ninevites. They, 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 they did evil to our, our ancestors, and I'm not going, I don't want to go there. He goes the exact opposite direction. God told him to go because he, he hated the Ninevites, and he had a detour in a fish. You remember that story? And he, God got him there, and he preached to the Ninevites. It wasn't a very gracious message. Turn or burn. That was his message. And they turned. And he was mad that they turned because he hated Ninevites. And so, the, 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 the land, so there's an extra chapter in, in Jonah as God deals with Jonah with his heart as one who's supposed to be a, a loving uh, prophet. But, there, but enemies, sometimes we don't know a lot about people, we, but we, we know enough to know we don't like them. So, sometimes uh, there, there's, there's major stereotypes we have about categories of people. And we think we know them because they're part of a, ca- a group, a category. So we prejudge them. Prejudice, we prejudge them based on on maybe their culture or something about them, their, their location. Uh, we, we draw hasty conclusions about people. So often, sometimes, like the Ninevites, there's historical reasons. Sometimes there's this traditional uh, uh, enmity between people groups. Dr. Martin Luther King talked about the problem of judging other people uh, by the color of their skin rather by the content of their character. We need to be people who love and who wait and don't give in to stereotypes and, and a false understanding, hasty conclusions about people based on who they are. This past Monday, I had the, the, the responsibility and the, and the honor of eulogizing the pastor that I followed at Forest Park, my, the first church I pastored. He, uh, Walter Mingus was a great man. He, um, he, he came into a situation in, in the Forest Park community of Baltimore uh, in, the late, in, in the early 60s. He, he, pastored that, he began to pastor that church on January 3, 1962. And not many of us were born back then. And he, he pastored that church for 28 years to 1990. And he came to that church at a time when the, the, the community was beginning to change, where the, the Jewish people were leaving and the Gentiles were, were still there and they were starting to leave. And African Americans from places like Sandtown and Monroe Street, they were beginning to, to move into that community. And churches were saying, what are we going to do about this? Are we going to be inclusive of the new people who are coming to this community, or are we going to be standoffish? And, and, and the, his predecessor had a heart attack and died suddenly, and they had enough wisdom to say, let's continue with the wisdom of his predecessor, who said, we will include the new people and not resist the new people, the African Americans. So this white congregation uh, began to, 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 to include these, these first the, the kids in the Sunday school, and then the, their parents who came to that church. And he... he, 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 he pastored, shepherded a congregation from being pretty much a white congregation with a few African-American kids to when he left in 1990, it was a black congregation, except him and his family. 
And when he left, it was black congregation, period. But he forced, he shepherded that whole thing. And, and, and he, was, he, was, he was great in many ways. Now, now many would say he, did, he didn't have a, a very sophisticated understanding of diversity like we do today. He didn't understand all the dynamics of racial reconciliation like we do today. And that's very true, and he'll tell you that. Well, he would have told you that. But look, he just simply believed the Bible. He believed the Bible. 1 John chapter 2 says this, 2 verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. That's as sophisticated as it had to be for, for Walter Mingus. He just said, God says, you're my brother, you're my brother. Let's, go, let's, let's get to work. And so we had, a, we had a wonderful time eulogizing him uh, the other day. But again, sometimes the enemies are people who we, we have stereotypes. We categorize people because of something uh, external. Sometimes the enemies can be people who we were once close with, but there's been a falling out. There's been some conflict. Those are the ones that hurt the most. In my first church, I've told the story before of a conflict I had with a woman. I'll call her Mrs. Wilson. But um, very, very quickly in that congregation, she, she, she stood up once to to challenge the leadership, challenge me in particular, and, and that was a very difficult time for me and for that congregation. I was, like, I was young. I mean, look, this woman, Mrs. Wilson, she was, she, she was my mama's age. I, you know, how am I going to challenge someone my mama's age? That's not easy. Um, God gave grace. We learned a lot of lessons through that, and uh, we had the privilege of helping her in her, in her husband's sickness and, and funeral and in her sickness and her funeral through the years. But that was a person who I was close with who had, we had a falling out with. But, but, but God, God worked, helped us work through that uh, as we began to just say, okay, this is a person where there, there once was love, a former friend, an enemy. Let's, what does love look like in this situation? And God was gracious to us. Enemies, you see, can be former friends. Enemies can be neighbors or acquaintances. Enemy can be folk at work or at, at school. Often at work and school, there's competition, isn't there? And there's, a, there's kind of a, a friendly smile, but there's, there's competition. Enemies can be what some have called frenemies, friends who really are enemies, the, the wolf in sheep's clothing. Enemies can be even members of your own household, spouses, mothers, fathers, sons, daughters. Hopefully those enemies are temporary enemies. It's very, very important that we, that it, and those people that we live close with, that we're very honest with them and when, we, when we're struggling, that we work out those struggles. Because the people who you live with are like you and I, sinners, and there's going to be tensions and struggles. We have to work those out. But we have to, we have to you know, because there's tension, because there may not be the, 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 the total love that you always have for that person, it doesn't kind of get you off the hook because you don't feel like it. You see, that's where it gets hard. That's where you got to get your hands dirty <laughs> and get to work and do the thing of, Okay, this person, they feel like an enemy to me. Okay, what do you do with an enemy? You love them. You get, to, you get busy and, and, and do what it means, uh, what needs to be done to love. The exhortation of Jesus is no secret. It's clear, isn't it? Loving your neighbor includes loving your enemy. That's what he's saying. That's the exhortation. Now, with that comes, secondly, in verse 48. Skip down to 48. The understanding that really it is impossible to do. It is impossible to do what Jesus calls us to do. James Boyce said that verse 48 is probably the most important verse in the Sermon on the Mount because look at the standard. Look at the standard. You must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Oh, that's all I got to do? What a standard. 
be perfect, without blemish, without, uh, without blame, without spot or defect, complete or whole. The, the command to love is like that. And Jesus here gives us, it's meant to cause us to, to feel the, the frustration of, of not being able to do that. I mean, in the verses before verse 43, he talks about going the extra mile, giving the person the coat off your back. He talks about being people of, of utmost integrity. That your yes be yes, your no be no. He talks about uh, not only not killing people, but not saying evil things to them, not calling them names. It's about not just not committing adultery, but having a heart that's free of lust and illicit desire. As you understand what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount, with all these, uh, you've heard it says, but I say, as he, as, as he raises the bar, the only response that anybody with integrity can have towards this is, woe is me, wretched man that I am. Oh, how I need Jesus. The standard is just so high. Loving, as Jesus calls us to do, is impossible. It really is. Several passages in the New Testament. I want to look at one of them for a minute. Uh, Romans chapter 12 is a passage where Paul exhorts us, in light of the mercies of God, we're to live a certain way. And, and he goes through a list of things, just skimming through that list in Romans chapter 12. Um, he, he talks about that this love is, there's a genuineness to this love. There's a, there's a purity to this love. There's, a, there's an honorableness to this kind of love. There's a, there's a passion, a fervency in this love. There's a, there's a positiveness, being patient and rejoicing in hope. There's, a, there's prayerfulness with this love. There's, there's serving and being hospitable, connected with this kind of love. There's, there's a blessing for others, even those who persecute you. It, there's, an, there's an empathy for others. Uh, rejoicing when they, when they rejoice and, and, and weeping when they weep. There, there's a blending with people, living in harmony, blending with people. There's a humility, not being haughty or associated with the lowly, uh, being wise in yourself. There's a humility. There, there's a meekness. Not repaying evil for evil, but, 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 but doing what have, God would have us to do. And then verse 18 is quite, let's land right there for just a second, because verse 18 is quite interesting. He, he pauses and says, if possible... So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Quite a statement. Paul seems to understand that sometimes you can do all you can to live in harmony, to, to reconcile with someone, and there's still a, a barrier. He understands that. And so he puts the onus on you, the one who hears this. If possible, as far as it depends on you, don't you be the one that's causing the rift to continue. It's what Paul is saying there. Love your neighbor and love your enemy. Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. If, there's a need, if, justice, if justice is needed and judgment is needed, it's not for you to do it. You leave it to God. You, your responsibility is not to judge. Your responsibility is to love, even your enemy. Vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. And then there's this charge to serve your enemy in, in verses 20 and 21. See, the reality is that reconciling relationships takes two people. It takes two people coming together. It takes two to reconcile. One person, though, must be the one to make the first move. And Paul and Jesus are saying, you be that one. You be the one to make the first move. In, in Matthew 5, 21 to, no, 23 to 24, Jesus gives a story about if, if you're at the altar giving your sacrifice, your gift to the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift to the altar for a minute and go be reconciled to your brother and then come back and do your gift, offer your gift to God. That's the same chapter, Matthew 5. See, the emphasis is always you do what you can to be at peace, to be reconciled with, when there's 
a conflict. <clears throat> Loving your enemies, the impossible thing. I have to confess, uh, in college, I had, we, we had a, a room in, in, at Frostburg where me and two of other, my Christian brothers, um, we always want to, to, to be witnesses to unbelievers. So we always had a spot, a spot in our four-person uh, room, uh, room, four, four room for an unbeliever. So someone would sign up and say, hey, I want to be on the first floor, right, in that dorm. And they sign up and say, I'll just be wherever I want to be. So we always, for, the, for, for a couple of years, we had, um, it, it was kind of three against one in terms of we being believers in Christ and, and trying to serve him and walk with him and, and obey the Great Commission to make disciples and, and to preach the gospel. And we wanted to have a spot for a person who didn't know Christ yet, but we wanted to witness to that person. Well, the problem was that we were, we were all kind of immature. <laughs> we were, to be frank, obnoxious. We were not very gracious witnesses. We, we did things that we were not respectful of his space, respectful of his time. I mean, you know, we want him to come to Christ, so we're doing things that, but he didn't receive it that way. So my point is simply that sometimes we can be so committed to the great commission that we forget the great commandment, and the two have to go together. And in, in you're in your seeking that people will come to know Christ. It begins with love. It begins with loving them. Someone says it's so, that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And we didn't do that. And I learned, I hope, hopefully I learned some lessons there. Dr. Martin Luther King had a sermon on this topic of loving your enemies. In fact, I gave you a copy of it on, on the connections table if you want to see that. But um, he talks about this. He says, how do we love our neighbors, our, our enemies? First, we must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. He who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. That connection. It is impossible even to begin the act of loving one's enemies without the prior acceptance of the necessity over and over again of forgiving those who inflict evil and injury upon us. He says, forgiveness does not mean ignoring what's been done or putting a false label on an evil act. It means rather that the evil act no longer remains as a barrier to the relationship. Certainly one can never forget. That means erasing it totally from his mind. But when we forgive we forget in the sense that the evil deed is no longer a mental block impeding a new relationship. Likewise, we can never say, I will forgive you, but I won't have any further, anything further to do with you. Forgiveness means reconciliation, a coming together again. King says, without this, no man can love his enemies. The degree to which we are able to forgive determines the degree to which we're able to love our enemies. It's impossible to do. It's impossible to do. Where do we get the power, the energy to do the impossible? In the text, look at verses 45 to 47, right in the center of it. Interesting words. It's about God's grace. And first is God's saving grace. God's saving grace. This is so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Let's talk about sonship. The fact that we, that we are born twice. We're born naturally and we're born again into God's holy family, his royal family. Sonship, we are, we're, by, by grace are we saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And he's saying, um, when we love like this, when we do this supernatural love, we're imitating our Father. Ephesians 5.1, imitate our Father. Sonship. Secondly, notice in, ver in these verses, something else about God. This isn't about God's saving grace. This is about what theologians call God's common grace. His common grace. His grace, not just to his children, but to everyone. These primary verses here. Look at what it says. 
For he, meaning God, makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Think about it. God brings the resources for life on all people. Though not everybody is asking for it. The sun, the rain that we need to to, to exist, to have food. God blesses the world with those things. It's called common grace. It's not requested by the unbelievers. It's not sought. It's not appreciated. Neither do they give thanks. Romans chapter 1. It's not deserved. It's undeserved. But God does it without distinction. Think of it. When it rains, because we need rain to survive, God doesn't say, well, if you don't believe in me, I won't give you the rain. I'll just put an umbrella over you. It doesn't, do, doesn't work like that. God is indiscriminate in his love, isn't he? As it, as it goes uh, to all. Common grace. And the point is, Jesus' point is simply this. Imitate God. Imitate God in having this common grace, this common love for all people. Imitate, when you do that, you imitate your heavenly father. And the implication is that if you don't know God as your heavenly father, you, you don't really have the, the strength and power to do that because you don't, have, you don't care about people as much as you should when you have Christ in your life. That's the implication that Jesus has here. C.S. Lewis has always talked about um, four types of love. Maybe you've seen um, the four loves, uh, the, the Greek words. He had a book on it. Uh, there's the eros love, there's the sexual love, the romantic love. There's a storge, which is the love of family, family love. There's philea, brotherly love, a strong affection. And there's um, agape, which is the divine love, God's love, agape, agapeo. Agape is love towards us that comes down from God, but agape is also love that comes through us to others. I got the, the divine love, and, the, and that's what we're talking about. There's a, there's a supernatural love that Jesus wants us to understand is available. Not as the Gentiles. The Gentiles have these other kinds of love. They have eros. They have love in their family. They have this, this affection, but they don't have agape. They don't have the love of God flowing through them. That's what Jesus is saying here. So you, are, you are the people of God, he says, and, and you have the energy, the strength to do beyond what others can do. In fact, Ephesians chapter 3, a great passage, it talks about that. Paul's praying there about the Jews and Gentiles living together in one church, and he's, he says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Christ in your hearts. So you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, the breadth, the length, the height, the depth of God's love. In his doxology there, he said, according to the power that's at work within us, there's a power, there's a strength, there's an energy available to those who have trusted in Jesus Christ that others do not have, the scriptures tell us. And it's knowing his grace and trusting his grace that gives us the capacity to do the impossible love that he calls us to do in the Sermon on the Mount. David was transformed. David was transformed by God's grace. Psalm 57 is a great psalm. It talks about a cry to the Most High. Uh, to the one who will save me in heaven, the one uh, who, 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 who gives me his steadfast love and who sends his faithfulness. The, the superscript, the beginning of that psalm, it tells the context. It says the context was, it was a victim of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. You remember in David's life, he was running from Saul in the cave. Saul was the, 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 the king and he was the future king and Saul didn't like that. And so he was being chased by Saul all over the place. And um, 1 Samuel 24 in 26, there's two episodes that, that, that give us, shine some light huh, on, 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 on what was going on because David had two opportunities 
to take Saul out, period. You know, and he's in a cave, and Saul's asleep. He, Saul's men didn't know that, that, that David and his men were hiding in the cave, and he comes to the cave, and Saul, Saul's sleeping. And, he, and so David's men say, hey, David, God has given you an opportunity. Take him out. Kill him. David said, I can't do that. There's another opportunity where, where he's in there, and he's relieving himself, Saul. He had two opportunities to take Saul out because that was the ethic. Your enemy, if you have a chance to take him out, you take him out. You kill him. David, though, writing these psalms, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Your steadfast love is great. Your faithfulness. He was basking in God's grace. And when you know God's grace, you're focusing on grace, it changes you. It changes your focus. It changes your motivation. Several months ago, you, might, you all recall the tragedy in, in, in Charleston, South Carolina, where um, I think nine people in a church were on a Wednesday night prayer meeting, Bible study, were, were shot by the visitor, the visitor, uh, uh, Dylan Roof. Um, what, what we marveled at was not just that it happened, but the reaction of the family members two days later when Dylan was brought before them through video um, by the judge, and they got to give a few words. Here's a couple of what they, what they said. Uh, Nadine Collier, the daughter of a 70-year-old woman, said, I forgive you. Her voice breaking with emotion. You took something very special from me. I will never talk to her again. I will never, ever hold her again. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. Um, the sister of DePayne Middleton doctor said, um, I acknowledge that I am very angry. But one thing DePayne always enjoined in our family is she taught me that we are the family that love built. We have no room for hating. So we have to forgive. So I pray God on your soul. And, then, and there were other testimonies of the family members. When I sat there watching that, I, I began to weep as I said, wow, the power of the gospel, the power of a pastor who trained his people to react in right ways to a tragedy like that. Because the, simpl the simplicity of the gospel says you must forgive. You must forgive those who hurt you. In his, um, again, in, in Strength to Love, Martin Luther King wrote about forgiveness. Um, remember that the negative things that you have not experienced from your enemy is not the sum total of who they are. The negative things that you experience is not the sum total of who they are. It's easy to demonize someone who does you wrong. That's who they are. He says, no, that's not who they are. That's just an, a part of who they are. He, King says, remember that there is good in the worst of us and evil in the best of us. He says, think about your own heart. And then he says, remember the goal. It is not to humiliate your enemy, but to win them, transforming your enemy into a friend. He understood reconciliation was the goal. And if you understand the civil rights movement, that was a remarkable thing that happened. John, 1 John 4 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Practically, what does this mean for us? Practically. Well, first, loving enemies is not about feelings. It doesn't begin with feelings. It's about doing what God calls us to do, doing right towards people, doing righteousness. Feelings may come. They may not come, but we do what God calls us to do in his word. Think about Jesus dying on a cross for you and for me. And the words that he said, Father, forgive them, 
They know not what they do. Over and over again, he was, it says that. I don't think he felt like giving the forgiveness, but he gave that forgiveness because that was what was needed. No, he felt pain. He felt pain as he suffered for us. John Stott says, true love is not sentiment so much as service. Practical, humble, sacrificial service. Practical application. Is there a long-term enemy in your life, a temporary enemy in your life? Is there a former friend or a frenemy in your life that you need to love in a radical way that Jesus is calling you to love, calling us to love? Is there someone that you have not gone the extra mile with towards yet, and, and, and therefore there's still a barrier because you are called to go that extra mile that Jesus talks about earlier in the passage? Is there someone who has gone the extra mile with you, but you're the resistant one, you're the one who's hard-hearted? You need to do what Jesus said to do and forgive. Is there someone that you need to just start praying for because there seems to be a block that's unmovable? Is there someone that you need to learn to forbear, to put up with? First Peter, we heard this verse earlier, love covers a multitude of sins. Sometimes you do all you can to be at peace, and God just says, look, forbear. Love them. Love covers a multitude of sins. I find that's true in, the, in home, in families. If my wife challenged me about everything I did, we'd be challenged. She'd be challenging me every day. She puts up. She forbears. Love covers a multitude of sins. Simply point is this, people. God loves his enemies. God loves his enemies and calls us to do the same. It takes two people to reconcile, but one person must make the first move. And the good news that we celebrate on the first Sunday of the, week of the month is that God has made the first move. It takes two to reconcile. Someone must take the first move. God has made the first move. God has sent his son into this world to be our savior. Romans 5, we heard the passage. It says four things about us, the state that we were in. It says that, that, that we were justified when we were weak, when we were ungodly, when we were sinners, and when we were God's enemies. That didn't keep God from sending his son to us. It didn't keep God from doing what it says he does in Romans 5, 5. He has poured into our hearts the Holy Spirit who's been given to us that we might have the power to do the impossible, which is loving our enemies. The gospel is clear. God loves his enemies. He loves you and me. He's poured that love into our hearts. He calls us to go and do likewise. Let's pray as we prepare for the Lord's table. Well, thank you for your love, the simplicity of your love for us. While we were yet sinners, you came to us, gave us forgiveness, and gave us your love. Lord, I pray that as we think about our own lives, our own walks with you, Lord, we would walk in your grace, rest in your grace, and be vessels of your grace to other people, Lord. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we... Every month we remind ourselves of the grace of God, that it's about God's grace, not about us. We do it around the Lord's table. It's not our table. It's a table that, that Jesus Christ instituted, turned a Passover celebration into the Lord's table on that night. The night in which he was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He took the cup and said, this cup is a new covenant shed for the remission of your sins. Drink it in remembrance of me. Whenever you eat the bread, drink the cup, you proclaim or announce my death. I come again. And so believers throughout the ages have done this on a regular basis. Officers can come forward as we continue. So we, we, we're celebrating his death, his resurrection, 
and the anticipation of his coming again for his bride, for those who know his love and those who know his grace. This table is for those who know Jesus Christ, who have repented and who believe he's the son of the living God. If you're a member of this church, that's great. If you're not a member of this church, but you know that gospel, you're invited to, to, to partake. If you know Christ and understand what this is all about. If you're a young person, a child, and you haven't been uh, through your parents approved to do this, and you hold back. If, you're, if you don't know Christ yet, you're, you're still thinking about this gospel of Jesus Christ, we ask you to, to let the elements pass by you. And think about the gospel, the simplicity of this gospel of Christ, who loves you, wants to come to you by his grace. Give you a moment to pray. It says in the scriptures that we must examine ourselves. Let's do that for just a second. <clears throat>